Today on Roll for Insights, I'm joined by Whistle While You Work, YouTuber, artist, streamer, and more recently, member of Joe Cat's Necro Hunt campaign. We discuss character creation, D&D pet peeves, ways to avoid RPG horror stories, and how to play villainous characters in a more interesting light. Now, sit back and relax. You're listening to Roll for Insight. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Roll for Insight. Uh, Whistle, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, so let's just get right into brass tacks. Your channel is big in the storytelling community. You've got multiple videos with like hundreds of thousands of views talking about uh, etiquette and various things, we'll say things, that happened during your D&D games, like early on in your, in your D&D, we'll say, career. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to identifying red flags, like what's one big thing that makes you go, oh, crap, this might not go very well? Uh, in players or DMs? Because there's red mm. flags for both. Let's start with players. Players, I think an immediate red flag is, are they, is their character only serving themselves? Is their character always going off by themselves? Um, are they bringing up random story points? Not that that's a bad thing, but are they like going around and overshadowing every conversation for something that's not like the main topic of the party right now. And that's usually a sign of a, of a, of a player that's not very experienced and can be corrected pretty easily. I'd say it's a minor red flag. It's more, that's just bad table etiquette than um, an actual problem. Personally, I've only had a couple problem players. I've mostly had problems with DMs. Um, <laughs> go figure. Um, Problem players, I found, normally end up being people who try to tell you how to build your character sheet or give unsolicited advice. Um, and usually, if you just talk to them and be like, hey, I I build my character this way because it's fun for me, that, that if that that will normally solve your problem. Um, but then you get people that are, like, really aggressive to the rest of the party or um, aggressive... Um, at the table in general, talking over people, that's another big one, which, again, a lot of these are minor things, but when you see them all kind of congregated together, that's normally when you need to have a conversation with your DM to talk about this player, or just, like, reach out to the player and be like, hey, could you chill it, tone it down a bit, this is kind of, you know, not cool at the table, and most of the time it'll work out for you, but... Sometimes it just it just doesn't, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But when it comes to DMs, because I've seen, I mean, recently there have been a couple of videos about handling problem players. I know Ginny D made one. But, I mean, a lot of people kind of beat around the bush when it comes to talking about problematic, I hate that word, but, you know, DMs that are not as ideal. Like, a lot of people try to skirt around that issue because it is much more difficult to deal with. I mean, what are red flags for mm-hmm. problematic DMs? A red flag for me for a problematic DM immediately is a DM that takes away your player agency. And and I mean, like, disregards roles. Like, say, you ask to make a check. Like, some the let's say, like, you're talking to an NPC and you don't trust them. And you decide, I want to roll an insight check because I want to know what their intentions are. I want to know if they're lying. And the DM's, like, uh, the DM either tries to make an excuse why you shouldn't or when you make the roll and they roll, um, this is a personal thing with me. If the DM's going to roll deception against you, I feel like that needs to be a public roll so that we know you're not fudging dice. Mm, yeah. um, 
so player agency is one. If um, your DM decides to not let you make saves for things, I've had DMs where they're like, oh, no, you're just charmed now. You're going to attack the closest person to you. Mm. Um, so player agency is one. Railroading um, is another one. And that's kind of harder to, that's one's harder to identify. At least I did. I find it's harder to identify a, a DM when they're really forcing you into a plot line. Um, because a lot of times you're just excited to play the game and you want to explore the world. And, but sometimes you'll be like, okay, what was the point of this decision if we were going to, this was going to be the outcome? I think Matthew Colville talked about this where he, he was talking about railroading and he brought up that sometimes, yeah, it's really difficult for players to determine what is a DM railroading and what is just a bad plan that wasn't going to work out. Like, how do you know that? it was just not going to work out for you or that the DM was using their omnipotent powers to push you out of your solution. I feel like that identifying that you need multiple scenarios. You need multiple times where you like, and normally an NPC will be involved too. At least I found um, like uh, say your mission is to go into the mine and stop the cobalts and take the treasure back. That's your mission, right? And you have, you have a plan and an NPC has a plan. You execute your plan and it fails. And then suddenly the NPC comes in with his plan and saves the day. I'd say that's an example of being railroaded into a plot line you didn't ask for. Yeah. It takes like multiple times throughout a campaign to like really identify if that kind of issue is a real mm -hmm. issue. Now That also leads into another sign of a bad DM. If the NPCs are doing all of the, the magic work, right? If your NPCs are always the one who's like... They're lying. If your NPCs are always going to be the like, oh, don't worry, I've got this thing for you. If that's always, if they're always giving you the solution, that's a bad DM because they're not letting you as a play, as a party create the solution, and it kind of defeats the entire purpose of the game. Yeah, because you guys are the main characters. Mm hmm. And I'm not saying an NPC can't have a main role. I've had plenty of games where we've had beloved NPCs that we've kept with the party. Um, in fact, the one I play every Sunday, we have a ship full of NPCs, an entire crew that we all love. So um, you can have NPCs that are endeared to the party and that are useful. Like we had our drow tailor on in our in my Sunday's game. We had a drow tailor who was really good at cracking codes. I found a portrait that had a coded message on the back. Guess who I asked to decode it? Because none of us are good at um, none of us are good with language ciphers. We asked that NPC. You can. Um, so it's a fine line between NPCs that are around to help you and NPCs that are on that only there to give you solutions. Yeah, like if you take if you take like well critical roles like character central plot lines, like you take Yasha's plot line from that uh, that campaign, and instead of centering it around a player character, you center it around the NPC. It really exposes why that would never ever work. Like, if you've seen that kind of, that, that episode, those few episodes, if you centered that around an NPC instead of around a player character, like, it's no longer impactful in any way. No, and you just don't care about it as much. Yeah, no, because, I mean, who cares? Like, it's, it, well, obviously a lot of players care about NPCs, but, like, at the end of the day, it's your campaign as well. It's, you can have NPCs that are endearing to the party that further plot lines, like, um... My uh, my Thursday game, we just started a new campaign. We've met an NPC named Alfonso, and he's kind of become our quest giver, right? He was very quickly our quest giver. And we all became endeared to him really quickly. He was just this sweet old innkeeper who had, like, a magically concealed inn. 
And he'd lost his wife to the dictator that moved in, so he had a good motive to want to, like, help us save the city. So he was immediately endeared to us. He gave us, um, st- he gave us a, a good plot line to go off of, but he's not the person we're always running to for a solution. He's giving us, like, it's... Quest givers are also difficult because it's hard to point your characters, your players, in a direction um, without seeming like this is the exact plot you have to follow. So that's another, I think, another uh, sign of a not great DM is if it feels like you are... Your quest giver is just railroading you into a track rather than saying you t- could do this and there's also this thing and there's also that problem um maybe you should go look around yeah so when you identify these kind of problems like you start seeing things cropping up more and more red flags are popping up everywhere what do you do like you're a player we're assuming you're not the dm you're a player what is your what are your first steps to trying to resolve this issue? Because if you just let it lay, it might boil over into something much, much worse. So early on, how yeah. do you kind of fix this thing? The first thing you don't do is don't let it lay. Make the person aware immediately, as soon as you start seeing problems, because you don't first of all, it's not fair to the person that you're having an issue with to have a problem with them, not tell them, and then suddenly expect them to fix it. They might not be aware that this is a problem. And therefore, you shouldn't expect them to fix it if they're not aware of a problem. So that's the biggest thing. Tell them, talk to them, and just, you gotta be careful in how you approach it too, especially if it's a DM. A player, I feel like it's a little easier to, for a player to player to be like, hey, can you like chill out? Cause this is kinda ruining the vibe at the table. Um, it's different, I think, with a DM to play, uh, player to DM because a lot of DMs they want to make a good experience for the players. I mean, the the ones worth playing with want to yeah. make a good experience for the players. So having a, a having that conversation is an uncomfortable, awkward conversation to have with your DM, and you're just kind of kind of have to get over that feeling. It's the bluntest way I can put it: is sit down and talk to them and just be very matter of fact. Don't be accusatory. Just say, hey. This these things happening are I feel like my player agency is being taken away. I feel like our decisions aren't like impactful. Um, can we try to resolve this, or can we try to do something else, or maybe can we maybe let go of this NPC and just let the party decide things for a while? You know, because really the DM might be like the NPC thing. The DM might just be wanting to be helpful and make sure you don't die. You know, um, it's there's a lot of different ways to tackle to tackle that kind of thing. Now, if the DM isn't receptive, then then you have an entirely different problem and you need to really uh, rethink the game you're in. Because if the DM is not open to player feedback, then that's just not, you're not going to go anywhere and you might as well find a new game at that point, in my opinion. No D&D is better than bad D&D. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of DMs, I mean, you mentioned before how DMs could just be wanting to be helpful with their DM NPCs. Like, yeah, I mean, I, it's the kind of same way that I look at, like, min-maxers or spotlight hogs on the player side. Like, some people are just really excited, you know, mm-hmm. up to a little too excited. They trample other people with their excitement, but that's not like, it's not like them trying it's to be not a, a sh- It's not like an absolutely shameful yeah, no. offense that you'll never recover from. And I guarantee you every single player has done that oh, yeah. in their life. Every player has either been a mid-maxer or a spotlight hog, and it's normally been early in your player experience. Mm-hmm. And that's as long as you learn the etiquette of the table and you get better, no one's going to get mad. It's not going to um, it's not going to keep like raining down on you as long as you are not continuing to act that way. And if people are still giving you shit over it when you know you've made like 
you've made like conscious effort to not to, that's a toxic group and you need to like, you know, GTFO. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we've been talking about red flags. What's one thing that you don't view as a big, as much of a big issue? Right, let me rephrase that. I'll cut that last bit. What's one thing that you view as not a huge big deal that other people see as a huge big deal? Like for me, it's edgelords. Like I don't think an edgelord is 100% of the time a bad thing, but a lot of people see it as like a no-go, absolutely not. Okay, so I kind of agree edgelords I don't really have a problem with because I I play a lot of edgy characters. I delve into dark topics, Um, but I guess I don't really have a problem with min-maxers at the table. I know that that's that's a very like... People are either for or against that. I don't mind min-maxers as long as they're not actively trying to overshadow other people in the party. Mm. I feel like everybody in the party has a role. Um, And while I understand some people don't want to, like, disclose things like class and subclass, like, I've kept mine pretty secret in my games until they came out. Even I've done that with race before. Um, Just being general as to what you believe your role in the party is going to be based on what you built. Like the blood hunter I made for my uh, uh, for my Thursday's game, um, they don't know what kind of blood hunter she is. I won't say here. Um, <laughs> no spoilers. But yeah, no spoilers. I don't need my players seeing this. Yeah, not um, allowed. <laughs> but I made her to be util- to be a-, a skill monkey. I made her to be kind of roguey. She's really good at sneaking, and she's re- she. I traded out one of her languages for thieves can't and i traded out one of her tool proficiencies for thieves tools um that's just a homebrew thing with me and my dm though um but i made her specifically to be good at sneaking and breaking in because we did not have that in the party we didn't have somebody who was good at more like i want to say criminal activity because she's not a criminal but like you know just suspicious things nothing wrong with that she's 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 good. I mean, she's a blood hunter. What do you expect from her? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, having a, I think um, min maxers are fine as long as you've had that conversation in game. What you believe your role is going to be, because you can't really fault someone for wanting to build a, a strong character that they think will be useful at the table, and it's just a different way to view the game. I don't view my characters like a, like a, like a stat sheet. Mm. I view my characters heavily from a narrative perspective. So when I when I'm picking like a, my like my, my invocations for my warlock, when I picked um, when I picked aspect of the moon, I wasn't thinking of oh I'll be useful during watches. I was thinking I am so intent on the goal I have that I have given up my need for sleep and I am constantly studying. Or um, when I took Tomb of Levistus, my patron is Levistus. So I took that as a narrative thing. So I think that it's just a different way to look at the game. And as long as that min-maxer is not being obnoxious or giving unsolicited advice, I don't think that that's a bad thing at the table. Yeah, absolutely. So aside from pet peeves that you don't think are a problem, what are small things that people do? Like, they're not going to break up the group, and it's probably not something worth bringing up, but just a small thing that makes you go, oh, come on, why'd you do that? I just had a conversation about this with one of my DMs today. That's really funny. Um, shopping episodes. I hate players that spend forever shopping. <laughs> what? I'm a DM. Like when- I love that. You know what that means? I get to sit down and just sit there and do nothing. I just like them. I hate that. I, I hate it because I'm a player that I am always chasing story. Oh, right? okay. 
Unless whatever's in this shop that we are bargaining for is a story-based item. I just see it as re-upping equipment or, you know, when you go and upgrade, get your upgrades in, like, you know how, like, in God of War, when you go and you find Brock or Sindri and you just upgrade your weapons real quick and you're done? Yeah. That's how I view any, like, that's how I view any shopping experience, unless there's magic items involved. That's a bit of a different beast. But when it comes to just, like, hey, is there a blacksmith? And then the player spends 40 minutes with the blacksmith, I'm just like... I just want to get on with the story, though. <laughs> and I know that's that's also more something on me. I'm very impatient, and I know this, but that's something I mm, I hate shopping episodes. <laughs> One time, my my I was DMing for my first campaign, and they went to a a halfling town, which in my world, halflings are really good farmers. So Aww. they went to this Tired halfling folks. town, there you go. and they spent uh, half an hour to an hour just talking about vegetables and what vegetables they want vegetables <laughs> fruits turkey they were looking for crab there was no crab it's a landlocked town but they were half half an hour to an hour of just shopping constant shopping i mean if all the players are into it i think that's different um but if it's just like one or two players like spending way too long at the weaponsmith i'm just like come on man i want to i want to go talk to this suspicious looking commoner in the corner of the tavern can i do that please i try to when that happens i often try to as a dm i try to like multitask and i'm like okay picking up back at the alleyway where the sus guy is and a good dm will that's something that a good dm always will but there's always just like but that, it's hard like, to do that in between. Like even it's, as a guy, yeah, well, especially well, especially because like when you're like, oh, this is that much, this is that much. They have this, they have that. When you're trying to actually work through the transaction, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, and you're trying to role play, yeah. and you're trying to figure out like, oh my god, is it stupid if I let them get this magical item, or are they going to use this in a way that will break something? Oh crap! Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't even have time to think about that, and you're role playing another encounter on the side because you want to keep um, the other players entertained. It's hard. It's basically it's yeah. super hard to do that. Yeah, so, and I'm, I'm not saying every shopping experience I've had in D&D is, and I'm mostly calling out one player who knows who he is if he's listening to this and knows that I mean this with all the love in the world. <laughs> You have recently joined uh, Joe, Joe Cat's Necro Hunt campaign. You made uh-huh. Luna uh, a, I believe, what is she? Is she a barbarian or a black? She's an Echo Knight. She's an um, Echo Knight, right. She's basically how I built a Witcher without being a blood hunter. That's what she is. I don't know how I forgot Echo Knight. One of my favorite NPCs I've ever made is an Echo Knight because I think that's the, one of the coolest subs. They're so cool. So and I cool. Just, I. I did not appreciate how cool they were until I was on Roll for Damage, actually. And we have an Echo Knight Barbarian multiclass, and her concept is so fucking cool. So I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna Boink. do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, Echo Knights are the best. But when you were creating that character, can you walk us through your creative process? Like, how do you come up with the idea? How do you come up with the personality? So, Stuff like that. Everyone does it different. <laughs> so Luna is, at least design-wise, heavily based off of the character I played in The Golden K which was the small five to six session campaign that Joe ran for us to, to, to help us build some player chemistry. He, um, we wanted to make sure that we knew each other's play style um, and that we got along well before we threw ourselves into a live game because that's that you, you run a game live. You know that playing live and playing offline are two entirely separate beasts. They are not the same. Um, 
playing live I love to do, but I it's it's more like I'm performing than I am playing a game, which is fine. I love doing that, but it is very much more like a, a really intense improv performance than D like I guess the spirit of D and D. Um, so Luna was based off of um, originally off of a Scourge Osmar swashbuckler I had made. Um, but I wanted to play something frontline melee. I never play melee. I'm either, I either play something super dexy or I play something magic and there is really no in between for me. And I really wanted to branch out. I wanted to play a character that, um, I love characters that have heavy familial bonds. Um, and I wanted her to, um, when he told us the setting, I knew I wanted to have a relative that was involved in the war, hence her dad. I knew I wanted her to have, I'm going to be talking from this as if uh, everybody here is caught up on Necro Hunt, so these are some spoilery stuff. I really wanted to play a Scourge Asmar that was connected to the Raven Queen. She's my fav- one of my favorite deities. Um, She's so really- awesome. It's such a cool idea for a god of death. I like so the idea cool. of a god of death being a completely neutral entity that's only fucking value is... Um, uh, everything needs to die at some point. This, that's the cycle of life, is that everything lives and everything dies. Um, so I wanted to play something really heavily revolving around that, but I did not want to play a zealot. I didn't want to play a character super religious, um, which is kind of how Luna's personality came out. Um, I, in the most recent episode, she had a very intense conversation with Enoch about how she doesn't belong to anything. She knows what made her. She's not dumb. She's put that together. But she does not belong to the queen. She does not belong to a god. She is Luna Icewind. She is her own person. And I felt like that was an interesting way to show an Asimar that wasn't fallen. I wanted to show a Scourge Asimar that was very um, like steadfast in her beliefs that I am me. I have made my, my name is mine. It's not because I'm blessed. It's not because of my dad. I got my name because of my own skills. And I also wanted to make a character with a very stable life. Like I didn't want to play someone. I normally play people with like really intense problems going on. I'm playing a character that's, uh, um, on Sundays I play a warlock that used to be a queen and is trying to get her kingdom back on Thursdays, I play a blood hunter that's trying to liberate the city she grew up in. I wanted to play a character that had a very established life and that she was happy in. She has her, she has her, her dude. She's got Scorpio. She's happy with her job. Um, she's happy with like the life she's living. She loves going out and hunting and fighting. She loves her career. And then a wrench gets thrown into everything, and now she's a necro hunt. Um, I wanted to play a character that's problems all came during the campaign rather than problems she already had. Not to say Luna doesn't have her issues, but I wanted her main problem to be um, her dad's tomb was desecrated right when the campaign started. So when you're building out a character, you like start with that central goal. And then how do you branch out from there? Like, how did you, for example, decide like various aspects of her personality? So... A lot of Luna actually kind of built on the fly because that's just how I am. I think a character's going to be one way and they end up falling towards the other. Um, Luna is, she's been called many times the strong mom of the party. You know, she's she's very maternal and she, she likes to uh, make sure everybody's okay. She's the hugger of the party, but she's also the ones that'll punch you in the face and tell you you're, be, you're being dumb. So um, I wanted to play uh, a character. Um, I wanted her to be very level-headed for somebody who likes to fight. 
And that was kind of the baseline. And then I kind of figured out her voice because Luna has a very, uh, I don't really know how to describe this accent because it kind of goes between kind of New Zealand and kind of English. It's just kind of here. Um, Move um, from New Zealand to England. There you go. Boom. There. It's my generic fantasy accent. But whenever I do it, it brings me into a very calm headspace because this was the accent I used for my druid arrow who was um from one of my most popular stories um the my dm nerfed my character video mm-hmm. arrow um got repurposed for a tomb of annihilation campaign got an amazing story um it ended it was beautiful but she turned into my like really um she turned that voice i was using for luna into a very calm maternal voice and that kind of just took everything from luna she's she's very um She's not very smart, but she she's because um, she's got like an eleven in intelligence. She's not super super smart. That's average intelligence, else. you know, like that's all. I, right. well, I mean, you know we have to... high we have high int. T- we have a lot of high int in the you can party. Read but... that means you yes, can read. I can read. That's good. Um, but like comparatively speaking, because we've got an artificer, we've got um, Nathaniel. He's really smart, and then we have Renee. Luna's kind of the one that's not as educated she's not dumb she's got pretty decent wisdom but she hasn't um been in books as much so i wanted her to be level-headed but i also didn't want her to be like that mom that knows all the answers i wanted her to just kind of be like no we'll find a way we're gonna we're gonna go get that black vein queen we're gonna go uh deal with bloodstride you're not gonna have to deal with that weird angel in your head if you don't want to i don't know how but we're gonna figure it out um so that's kind of how she she became her. She turned from what well, she was originally going to be a lot more cocky and arrogant, and I decided that was best left to Scorpio. <laughs> yeah, because things less... <laughs> things that you that you develop in the in the pregame during session zero, like they almost never stay. Like even as a DM mm-hmm. who's making NPCs, like it just exactly. usually doesn't work out. Like, and that's not a bad thing. It just means no, that it's just you know just things how evolve. it happens. I've only ever had one character that stayed the exact same way I planned her, and that's because I wrote her for half a year, practiced her voice for half a year. I got her personality really quick. Damn. So that we were planning for, um, it was right when Tomb of Annihilation was ending. We were planning for our next campaign, The Plight of Monteria. And so we, I had a lot of time to think about what I was playing and a lot of time to um, think about the region I was in too, because the area is basically Italy in our world. So I got to play with a lot of that, like, She's very smarmy, but she's like v- very thick Italian accent. Um, very superstitious, very fun. So um, usually, though, I just kind of let the character decide for itself based on whatever situation we're in at the time. Is there a way that you find your characters change? Like that, like some kind of consistent um, way that you end up evolving your character's personality when you start playing them? Like for me. I almost always end up making them less serious than I envisioned because my game isn't my game isn't jokey like serious things happen but usually we need I I need my my players are all new and they're new role players I've been doing improv for a long long time that means that I'm a lot more comfortable with it but to get them out of their shells like I often need a more jovial person you need like some some something to kind of break the ice a yeah bit exactly so them. often NPCs will end up being less serious not to the point of being like clowns but they're they're just less serious than I imagined so for you how do you often find that your characters evolve when you play I 
this is a consistent thing with every character I play, and I've just decided it's a part of my playstyle, and I'll just make it different how they handle it. I'm a panicky player. When shit starts going down, I'm that one that's like, oh god, oh god, oh god. So I've had to decide how my characters handle when I start panicking. Like, Luna. Luna does not handle it well. She did not handle it well when everything started changing. She got mad and she had to go spar with her Echo for an hour to get the aggression out. Then we have Pyrrha, my blood hunter. Pyrrha's defense mechanism when she gets uh, panicky is to start running her mouth. She's very, she's a smart ass. She, she just like, she'll keep talking and talking and talking until either there's no one left to talk to or you punch her in the face. There's really no in between. And then you have my, my warlock Valwyn, who when she gets panicky... She goes quiet, and she um, gets very calculated. She kind of lets go of all emotion to the situation and makes a lot of really cold decisions. Mm. Like, um, she threatened to set a person on fire. She's also based off of Daenerys Targaryen, so that Hell should... Hell yeah! <laughs> that's, that should, uh... Dragonstone is right there. Um, nobody's upset, but, like, I... Valwyn, like, straight up threatened to douse somebody in oil and set them on fire. So she gets really cold, and uh, she's also mildly insane, so she's got that going for her. <laughs> so I'm panicky. I need to figure out how my characters react to my panickiness. That's cool. That's a good way to, like, integrate your personality into characters. Because often people will say, like, oh, I really want to play a character that's not like me. And obviously that's fun. All of my characters aren't like me. I'm not a sassy Italian woman. I'm not a badass fighter chick with two swords. I'm not a crazy 200-year-old queen. Um, I wish. You can... <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know, because we're really... Listen, she's got a Jon Snow-type character with her. He might end up killing her. So, um... Epic. That's a that's a problem. <laughs> I mean, have you ever made a character where you're like, you know what? I think it would actually be cool if this one died. Like it would actually. Be- oh yes, Valwyn absolutely. If Valwyn dies, it makes sense. This is a woman that's lived for two hundred years and has had to give two souls to the nine health hells every month. We've done the math. She's given over 6,000 people to the Nine Hells. Oh, this geez, is not a good man. person. This is not... We, me and my DM did not realize that figure until we actually mathed it out. And it was so outrageous. But we're like, nope, this is, this is the thing now. You've killed 6,000 people. 6,000 people. Holy hell. <laughs> granted, granted, before anybody starts yelling at me, I should point out. Every person that Valwyn has sent to the Hells has been a criminal. Yeah, bad <laughs> has been a, has been a bad person. She has actively targeted murderers, um, crim- uh, underground criminals, smugglers, uh, slave traders. Those are the people she targets, <laughs> like actual bad people. But that's still six thousand people. people. Yeah, it's a lot. Oh my God, she's light. <laughs> she's literally light. <laughs> she's Daenerys and light. Had a fucked up child. Because. <laughs> um, I want her to die. Like, legitimately, I've talked to my DM. If she dies, I'm fine with it. And if Dominic's the one who kills her, I'm fine with it, too. So He's because, a Jon like, Snow type, I'm assuming. Yes. Uh, I had a, a my military advisor who no longer remembers any of his previous life in my kingdom because hag bullshit. Um, Damn hags. I've been, yeah, hags are great. We've got, uh, we've got a lot of uh, Greyhawk shit in our world um i used the evil was the one who took over my country <laughs> so i'm actively trying to go against a demigod it's going great for me um what could go wrong but <laughs> um so yeah he he's hasn't learned any of my bullshit yet but he will soon 
probably. And that's going to be a situation. So if he, if he, if I die during this, Valwyn kind of deserves it the way I see it. And her goal is not to live. I made her a character that was okay with dying. She, all she wants is her kingdom free. If she dies in that process, that's fine. As long as I use dies too. It's all she wants. I have given advice on how to play like edgy but still like good characters. Think Arya Stark or Caleb Widogast, you know, characters like that. <laughs> I've given advice for that, but I've never given advice on characters who are incredibly morally ambiguous. Think Tywin Lannister, like Yagami, characters that do very notably bad things, <laughs> but they have. I, like, I could make a moral justification for why... They, they have do. an objectively good reason. Yeah, they have a good reason, but they do very bad things. And for a lot of people, it's incredibly difficult to play characters like that. Do you have any advice for people who want to play characters that really stray that moral line? Accept that your character is not a good guy. Accept that. Accept that you are not playing a good guy. That doesn't necessarily mean you're playing a bad guy. And also dismantle this idea of good and bad in your head. If you're going morally gray, those things don't exist. Um, think of think of everything from your character's perspective, right? Let's let's take Valwyn because Valwyn's my best example of a morally gray character. In her mind, none of what she's doing is it's not good, but it's not evil. She, like, the people she's she's um, sent to the hells, she's said, it's a necessity, and I made sure it was nobody innocent. Those are, That's how she justifies it to herself. Find ways for your character to justify why they're making this decision. Mm. Um, I scry on people all the time. Like, Valwyn, Valwyn, there is no privacy with Valwyn. She will scry on you. That's how I found Dominic. I've scried on my former advisor several times. Um, the way she justifies it is... I need to find this person or I need information. She threatened to set a person on fire in an interrogation. Um, it's, it's, um, she's dealing with Tasha is in our world. Like the Igwilf, the witch is in our world and involved in my storyline. Um, so as more like intense figures got brought in, she becomes more and more reckless because she's thinking, I need to, I need to up the ante because things are getting more complicated. I need to take step more steps ahead. So I need to scry on this person. I need to make sure this person dies and goes to hell. I need to make sure that we secure this artifact. Um, I need to make sure that this person believes this thing. And I'm lying to this person about this. And I'm, I'm tricking this person with that. It's all in the name of saving her kingdom. Every decision she made, she's justified with, I'm saving my people doing this. I am bearing this cross to save these people. That's how I, at least how I think you should play a morally great character. They don't believe they're morally gray. They think they're in the right. This is also how you play an evil character. Think of everything from, I'm doing this for what I believe is a good cause. I don't believe that what I'm doing is evil. I don't believe that what I'm doing is bad. I'm not doing great things when you boil them down, but I'm doing them all for a good reason, like saving my people or uh, liberating the city. Yeah. Because I often see people who want to play evil, morally gray, they go, oh, I'm playing a morally gray or evil character. I need to go out of my way to be 
as Mm-mm. ridiculous, evil, or even offensive as possible so that people know, like, people know I am evil. But that's just not the- fun. Mm-mm. Actually, I've played one character that was absolutely um, neutral evil, which I think is the most dangerous of evil that's besides chaotic. Fun? But, what do you mean? <laughs> um, I was playing a neutral evil character in a campaign, and none of my party knew my alignment except for my DM. And they never, none of them knew that I was an evil character until um, towards the end of the game. It was a short game. It was like, I think, six, seven sessions. It was, uh, if you want to watch it, it's, it was the ruffians over on Roll for Damage. Um, I played a character named Era Blackwood, whose sinisterness did not come out until we were at a masquerade. She met another necromancer. Her, she was a school of necromancy wizard. Um, she, I, I wanted to play. I didn't want her to be obviously evil. I wanted her to be a scholarly type, but she was really a, 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 a wizard chasing after lichdom. She had a good reason that she wanted to chase after Lichdom. Um, there was a character that she mentioned a couple times named Davin Blackwood. He was her husband. He had gotten sick. He was dying. They started looking for ways to help him. They um, started zeroing in on Lichdom um, because they both want... She was also an elf. He was a human. So there was also that life expectancy difference that neither of them wanted to deal with. Yeah. So they decided, we'll, we'll, we'll achieve Lichdom. It's worked before. We can make it work. We are smart enough. We are ambitious enough that we will not go insane. Her husband found the secret. He went insane and locked himself in a demiplane. So now she is chasing after Lichdom so that she can learn the same truths he did. She's doing it through not great means. Um, And her sinisterness did not come out until the masquerade um, when she talked with this uh, necromancer and they were talking about these deep secrets that she's searching for. Um, she didn't raise a single body until our final fight. So being subtle with your evil characters and just letting that sinisterness kind of drip out, I think is the best, one of the best things you can do as a player. You don't want your party to know you're evil because if you're playing a party of mostly like good aligned to neutral aligned characters, there's a good chance they're going to turn on you if they're seeing you do a bunch of crazy shit yeah, it makes no sense that they'd work with you at all like i i, I played with a with a dude who i did not like and he and i specifically told him like no evil characters i'm not trying to run for evil characters blah 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 blah. and he was like yeah i'm chaotic neutral and i was and at the time i was like yeah that's fine what could possibly go wrong chaotic neutral that doesn't mean anything right and then like first session he tries to sell out the party to strad and that's okay I could see an argument for chaotic neutral there, but I'd know, I, would, or I would say that the situation that's more neutral evil, because chaotic neutral is kind of like fuck everybody but myself alignment. But there's nuance to that. Yeah. Because honestly, if you're a player, if, if you are making a character that's just going to be like, no, fuck you guys, I'm not working with you, you shouldn't be playing D&D. That's not a good mindset to go into a game with. If you want to play a lone wolf, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was to connect your character to another character to pull them out of their shell a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I did with Arrow, my my druid. Um, she came in, not quite a lone wolf, but she was quiet. Arrow's a very timid person. She didn't have a very great life. Um, so before she really became endeared to the party and that like maternalness took over and she like got really close with the party, she had our character Tealeaf, who is our rogue ranger, 
and they had met each other on a boat before the campaign, Tea Leaf had learned a few things about her that kind of made Arrow need to be in a position where she needed to trust him. He proved to her, she had, like, he established that trust with her. And therefore, when Arrow was quiet, Tea Leaf could pull her out of her shell a little bit. It would have some, it was somebody for her to talk to and interact with that would then endear her to the rest of the players. Like, I think the first thing she did was, like, tell him he had, like, something on his face and she tried to clean it, like, clean it off his cheek. Honestly, studying characters like the character you want to play, like Valwyn, I take a lot of stuff from Daenerys Targaryen. Um, I, I take, uh, like, not just in her story, but just in how she conducts herself. She tries to stay in control of a situation, but she's also not afraid to, in very matter-of-fact terms, threaten your life. Um, she's very authoritative, and she's, uh, she's very eloquent in how she speaks. And that carries a lot of air uh, weight with her, and it, it puts an air around her of, this is a noble woman. This is a woman who knows what she's doing, and she's fucking scary that she is brandishing a flask of oil at you and a flame in the other hand while you are tied to a chair. Yeah. So when it comes to creating characters, like, if you had to offer one final piece of advice... What is your big rule, like, when you're creating characters? Like, what's one thing that if you don't follow this rule, you're probably not going to make a great character? Challenge yourself. Don't lock yourself in a box. It's very easy to do, especially if you, like, if you're joining a second game, right, and you really want to, you're enjoying your first character so much. Don't lock yourself in that box. If you are playing someone that's super sweet and magic and like super sweet and they're more magic oriented and maybe they're a bit more charismatic and maybe they're like a little timid, play someone that's like really in your face. Play doesn't have to be melee, but maybe switch switch to a melee class, something. Play the exact opposite of that and really challenge yourself as a role player on how you would handle that because you're you're gonna look at that and immediately go to stereotypes, right? Um, like um when I transitioned from playing sweet little Nia on Roll for Damage to a big barbarian in my, uh, in my uh, Ragnarok game. They are still, like, I, I struggled to make Astra. I struggled to make her because I didn't want to fall into the, uh, the uh, stereotypes of a barbarian. I didn't want to play a dumb barbarian. I wanted to flavor my rage differently, um, but I still wanted to be a strong, competent character same thing with luna um challenge yourself don't don't be afraid to try something also accents are awesome to get you into into um into a character like um for my Monteria game i had to basically make a weird mix of italian and polish and smash them together because that was the region we're in and it, i spent three weeks perfecting this accent and now I can get in and out of it and get into Peter's mindset really easily. So don't underestimate accents either, because they're really good at helping you understand how a character um, thinks and how they're going to act. Um, and learning accents is easy. Just look up how to speak in X accent on YouTube. You will probably find someone who will teach you the oral posture and the different vowels really fucking fast. Awesome. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Whistle, of do you course. have anything happening this week? All we got left is to roll out the red carpet. So tell us what you've got going on. Oh, I have something very exciting. Uh, this week, I believe it, it's on, what, the, this Friday on the 6th, Roll for Damage is coming back. And I'm coming back as Nia. I haven't played Nia in, like, six months. I'm coming back as my girl, and I'm really excited. Um... 
We've been on a bit of a hiatus because of some stuff with the cast. We've got two new players, uh, Yaroshin and Uzu, uh, Uzu Rogue, Kelsey B. Uzu, is, is joining us as well. It's going to be super fun. We've got the folks over from Paradise RPG and, of course, Nova as our amazing DM. So you should totally come check us out. We're so excited to finally be coming back. Awesome. So, guys, if you guys enjoyed this episode of Roll for Insight, then please do leave a like. If you want to see more of my content, then please do subscribe to Crispy's Tavern. If you want to leave your own thoughts, go down to the comments down below. If you can't think of a comment, leave the comment morally gray to let me know you made it to the end of the video. In essence, like, comment, subscribe. We will both see you all next time. Farewell. Goodbye. Okay,